Welcome back. You're listening to Jason Lee Willis's Bible study series, Examining Moses. Today's episode, Sinning in Sin. So, our omniscient God led the Hebrews by the roundabout way through Yom Sof, the Red Sea, and directly into a path of a pretty horrible enemy, the Amalekites, all while knowing that the Hebrew spies would lose their nerve after seeing what waited for them in the land of Canaan. The plan? Bible camp. Remember that the Hebrews have been immersed in Delton, Hyksos, and Theban culture for the better part of four centuries. And as a result, they have probably developed some pretty skewed beliefs. By contrast, Jethro and Zipporah remained people of God, despite being Midianites, who were not the chosen people. Down in Nubia, otherwise known as Kush, Aksum, Sheba, Ethiopia, there remained more God folks who still had texts like Adam and Eve and the Book of Enoch, who would present themselves in Israel in the form of the Queen of Sheba and would celebrate their connection to David and Solomon for centuries afterwards. The Hebrews, however, needed to go to spiritual rehab center. Even though after three months they had seen lots of supernatural signs and wonders, the Hebrews still did not have a clear moral code. Most folks are very familiar with the Ten Commandments, which is why I'm leaving that for Sunday school. But the Hebrews were also about to receive the Book of Leviticus, which goes into minute detail to explain what offends God. Even though Christ later explained that these rules condemned everybody, a definition was needed. This is a sin. This is also a sin. Stop doing this. It's a sin too. Although Moses was righteous, you know, he already had his spiritual rehab from age 40 to 80, the Hebrews would also need their 40 years. Remember, they did not wander for 40 years. They waited for 40 years so their kids could enter the promised lands. The older generation had seen too much sin, and the younger generation needed to be brought up in isolation from other cultures. Spiritual rehab. In Exodus 18, Moses seems to understand this, and during a meeting with Jethro, explains how he is burdened with answering questions and making judgments. Because of this burden, Moses leaves his wife and sons with Jethro and pushes deeper into the wilderness. Exodus 19 verse 1 reads, In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. By this time, you're probably sick of me complaining about the reality of the migration. But here's another example of how the rate of even a simple walking pace would make it problematic for any size of horde 
to stay within such a small area as the Sinai Peninsula. After crossing the Red Sea, it seems that there are several more days of journey, adding an additional month to one year of the Exodus. The peninsula is only about 200 miles long, which is a bit problematic for more than a week of travel. If you go with my theory about actually crossing Yom Sof, then the Hebrews really find themselves stuck deep in the Arabian Peninsula. Without God, they'd be dead in days. Until recent centuries, when transportation and technology shrunk the world for travelers, the old maps created of the Middle East showed the location of Mount Sinai as Jabal al-Musa, which is also known as St. Catherine's Monastery. Again, I have nothing against this being the holy mountain except for the minimization of the listed miracles, the dramatically slow travel rate, and the illogical interactions of faces and places described in the text. It just perplexes me, and the traditional location seems off. Here are a few things bouncing around in my little mind. Would God want the holy mountain to be public or hidden in mystery? What were the characteristics described in the Bible about the mountain? Who else ever went to the mountain? So this episode is going to focus more on the meaning of Sinai and the wilderness of sin rather than the commandments. The name of the mountain. After a thousand years of acceptance, there are now some crackpots, am I included? Challenging the placement of the holy mountain of God. My reasons are to be as adherent to the text as possible, not to criticize, just to understand. So let's start by looking at what the name means. In some places, it is called Horeb. Horeb is a reference to glowing, heat, or the sun. So this makes perfect sense. When Moses stands in front of the angel, the bush appeared to burn, but didn't burn from a natural flame. Horeb, the Horebing Bush. That is a nice title. More often than not, it is also called Mount Sinai. Remember, the only reason we call it the Sinai Peninsula is because Constantine's mom, Helena, put a pin in the map at Jabal el Musa. Was there archaeological proof? I, mean, I could open Google Earth, get out my distance line, and take a stab at it also, but that won't mean I'm right. The problem with most of this section of Exodus is that there is no conclusive acceptance since God dropped them into a place where there were no other humans. Plus, the Hebrews never built any permanent houses. For a creative fellow like me, there are all sorts of possibilities. So what does Sinai mean? Sinai comes from the phrase, the wilderness of Sinai, or the wilderness of sin, and wilderness of zin, S or Z. This word is also used in association with Kadesh, which is also disputed. Many scholars have put their pins in the map to justify the Helena theory, 
much to my chagrin. First, let's look at the Hebrew word used for wilderness, midbar. This word implies desert, yet the peninsula is very mountainous, especially around Jabal Musa. For this reason, scholars have often placed it in the extreme southern Israel, allowing the rest of the peninsula to be dubbed Sinai. By comparison, Arabia is a more classic definition of desert. Remember my early references to Arabia? Is there a connection? Well, it turns out that there is a Sumerian deity named Sin, uh, S-I-N, also known as Nana, N-A-N-N-A. And where is Sumer? It was ancient Babylon, in the land of Ur, where Abraham came from. So if Moses wanted to explain where the Hebrews stayed, and he was in Arabia, which I think there is support, then writing the wilderness of sin would translate into the sandy area between me and Iraq, which would be the Arabian Desert. Yes, my theory would need to redefine Rafidim and Kadesh, but I think it makes a lot of sense for why the Hebrews will later have to cross the River Jordan. Putting them in the Arabian Desert also provides isolation and complete dependence on God. When they leave, the sands cover up all traces of their stay. But the mountain should still be there somewhere, right? The mountain did not evaporate when the Hebrews left. The Holy Mountain of God This very special mountain that Moses visited might be special for some other reasons. In the book of Ezekiel, there is a very strange passage that seems to compare the king of Tyre directly to Satan. While ignoring the elephant in the room, um, Satan, uh, notice the little tidbit included in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 28, verse 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. The holy mountain of God? If all this angel talk is indeed Satan in the Garden of Eden, then it connects Satan with something not mentioned in Genesis, a mountain. Sure enough, in the book of Enoch, as well as the book of Adam and Eve, which is a strange Ethiopian version of Genesis, there are expanded descriptions of the holy mountain of God. To paraphrase, after Adam and Eve left the garden, they went to a mountain with a cave, where they found shelter in the early days. Remember the Magi? Well, there is a backstory about the treasures of gold, incense, and myrrh, which were housewarming gifts as well as prophetic messages of hope. The message? Keep these gifts 
and re-gift them to the Christ when he comes. Then the story explains how it turned into a tomb for Adam and other pre-flood patriarchs. The mountain also had a window of heaven above it, where Adam and Eve could look up to see into heaven. Junk, huh? (laughs) Well, ask yourself why Moses included this detail about the flood in Genesis 7.20. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Wait, why do we need to know how deep the floodwaters were? Did Moses measure? He was in the ark. What is significant about 15 cubits? Um, I don't know, deep enough to drown a giant? Well, what if the holy mountain of God from Ezekiel matched the other two accounts? If true, then the window of heaven was 15 cubits above the holy mountain of God. The floodwaters unnaturally came from the fountains of the deep and also the window of heaven instead of regular rain clouds like we have now. If the window of heaven is like a faucet, not a cloud, then Moses understood how deep the floodwaters were, 15 cubits. So now Moses and Ezekiel seem to connect their mountain talk. It is weak evidence, though. If the holy mountain of God existed before the flood, would it have been destroyed? If it did survive the scouring flood, would it still be special or found? Later, I'll talk about the precautions Moses took with the mountain, but know that if any unrighteous person set foot on it while Moses was talking to God, they would fall down dead. Epic, huh? Elijah visits Mount Horeb. There are some really cool details found in 1 Kings involving Elijah, that wild prophet who later takes a chariot ride into heaven and vanishes from the earth. See John the Baptist for more details. Uh, In this section, Elijah is tormenting the unrighteous Ahab and Jezebel. These two uh, want him killed. Like Moses, he goes into hiding. Like Moses, he goes to Mount Horeb. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them, by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals. 
and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights into Horeb, the mountain of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, and for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seekest my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the children for the Lord of hosts, because the children of Israel has forsaken the covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets of the sword. And even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nishmi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel mehel <laughs> shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Okay, so there's a lot to take in from this section. FYI, Malachi 4.4 confirms uh, Elijah at Horeb. First, I'd like to point out that Elijah went one day into the wilderness from Beersheba, which is indeed in the southern part of Israel or Judea. Uh, which direction is that? It doesn't say if he went south toward Jabal Musa or east into Arabia. Beersheba is on the edge of the Negev Desert and just 20 miles from present-day border of Egypt. Elijah is 180 miles from Jabal al-Musa. To prepare him for the rest of his journey, an angel arrives and bakes him a cake. As strange as this sounds, I think there is something significant happening. Whether he is about to travel to Jabal al-Musa or Indo Arabia, it will be a tough trip. Like the Hebrews, he is getting angel food cake, which will sustain him the exact same way manna sustained them. It is a uh, 
heavenly food that allows him to go day and night into a place where there is no food or water. Super cool. Now, <laughs> this is where math again causes some issues for me. Elijah is supernaturally charged up with angel food, allowing him to travel both day and night. He did not have to go slowly or lazily with a horde of Hebrews with him. In contrast, Elijah, by himself, could walk at a brisk pace, you know, four or five miles an hour. The text implies that he did not lounge around on long breaks. So I'm going to give him eight hours to sleep. And since he doesn't have to stop for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, he could easily be walking 16 hours a day. For how long? Holy cow! Well, sorry about the bail joke. Uh, even if I dial that down to 10 hours a day, he would travel 50 miles a day for 40 days, which would be 2,000 miles? Oh, dear. You know, he just flew past Jabal Musa, didn't he? The pace for Jabal Musa would be four and a half miles per day. How big is the Arabian Desert? Well, the Arabian Peninsula is 1,400 miles from Beersheba to the side closest to the Indian Ocean. Again, one theory limits reason and the other seems to fit. There are a few other things to note in the Elijah story. First, there is a cave. Now, the Moses story does not mention a cave, but here... Elijah distinctly adds the detail, which seems to match the stranger pre-flood accounts. A second detail found in the account is the idea of holy fire. But that is not natural, only when God arrives. The earthquake is curious since it could change the landscape of the mountain. Yet the coolest detail, for my theory, is that God tells him to swing by Damascus on his return. Returning from Egypt, you know, in this Sinai Peninsula, would take him through Judea and Israel. But returning from the deserts of Arabia, he would come out of the wilderness at Damascus. Pretty cool. Jesus at Horeb. The 40-day journey, along with angel food, reminded me of the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. What wilderness? Well, defenders of Jabal al-Musa put the wilderness of Sin near Egypt, which is pretty close, if I'm being honest. Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4 all describe Jesus going into the wilderness. But the, only the Gospel of John says where Jesus would have been prior to leaving, the wedding of Cana. If the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, he would have had to go all the way back south from Galilee and into Judea, etc. Some scholars just have him hang in Galilee in the mountains. I'd like to propose that Jesus went to Mount Horeb but not in Sinai, in Arabia. Elijah took 40 days to get to Mount Horeb. And here, Jesus fasted and was led for 40 days and 40 nights. 
What it doesn't say is that if Jesus walked for two miles and sat down for the next 39 days, or if he walked for 39 days and sat down on the 40th. None of the accounts are clear about that. I do know that angels had to minister or nourish him afterwards, as the journey was difficult. Passing from Galilee to the south would have allowed him to pass through civilization for much of the journey. Walking into the wilderness of Arabia would have left him quite vulnerable, which seemed to be the point of the temptation. The next anecdote after the temptation has Jesus returning to Jerusalem at the Passover before returning to Galilee to gather up his flock. Forty days there and back again would give you about 80 days. And with the days specifically described by John around the wedding of Canaan and, Canaan and baptism, it would mean Jesus was baptized just after the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. Having Jesus take the same trip as Elijah is not only super symbolic, you know, post-John the Baptist baptism, but it also gives a tight account of the three months between winter and spring. If you have Jesus go anywhere else, the days don't add up to fill up the three months. Moses at the mountain. So there are several passages that describe the mountain. Let's do a quick overview to refresh our memories. When Moses is given the Ten Commandments, there are some interesting details. Exodus 19.11, the people will be able to see God descend in Horeb. Uh, Exodus 19.12, Moses puts bounds around the mountain to keep them safe. Exodus 19.18, smoke and fire surrounded the top. Uh, Exodus 33, after the golden calf, they buried their loot at the mountain. Now, much of Exodus 19 to the end concerns laws and regulations. But at the end, chapter 40, the first year of the Exodus comes to an end, with God appearing as a pillar of smoke and or fire, signaling if they'd move the camp or not. But where is the mountain? The Helena theory has them staying in a triangle of land 100 miles wide by 100 miles wide. The Arabia theory gives them the vast wilderness of Arabia to hunker down. So problems with the Helena theory. In 33 AD, after a sightseeing tour of the Holy Lands, St. Helena built a chapel at Jabal Musa, which would later become known as St. Catherine's Monastery. FYI, Catherine of Alexandria was beheaded and the angels hit her body, kind of like Moses in chapter 12. In Exodus, I'm sorry, in 800 AD, monks found her body and built the monastery, which became a popular stop during the Crusades. So problem number one, there is not a lot of space. While the pillar could have them moving a few miles east and a few miles north and a few miles south, the peninsula is a pyramid shape too far west and you're right next to Egyptian mines. Too far east 
and you're in Midian or Moab. The mountain ranges also mean the camp would have to be spread out of, over vast areas of ravines and valleys. Problem number two. It's still Egypt. The whole point of rehab is to break them of their pagan addictions. The Helena theory puts them less than 100 miles from Goshen. They could run away and be back in Egypt in just a few days. Problem number three. Ramses is only 56 when Moses is 120. That's right. Ramses the Great did not die in the Red Sea. He could have grown an entirely new army and gone back for the Hebrews. The Great Bitter Lake? That ain't stopping him. In the Sinai Peninsula, the Hebrews are still stuck between a rock and a hard place. Ginger Mandius the Great could make war on them for four decades. Moses hurt his pride. Why would he stop hating the Hebrews? Problem number four. Have you looked at Google Earth? The terrain around Jabal Musa is 1,200 square miles of rugged mountains. There is nothing different about Jabal Musa than a thousand other peaks near it. The ravines are steep. There is nowhere to put 600,000 Hebrew men, regardless of how many died during that first year. Jabal Musa itself has no viewing area where the Hebrews could see God descend. Heck, based on seating, most of the Hebrews would have been behind several mountains. There is no good place to encircle the mountain with rocks either. It does not stand alone. Problem number five. It has tourists. Moses had to put rocks around the mountain to keep Hebrews from dropping dead by standing too close. Now, there is an airport, steps, railings, trash cans, and a nice panoramic viewing area. The Jabal laws theory. So after years of thinking the map in my Bible did not match what it seems to describe, I came across a book by Howard Bloom called the Gold of Exodus. In the New York Times bestseller, he writes about the travels of Larry Williams and Bob Cornuk as they disregarded the Helena theory in favor of an actual crossing of the Red Sea into Arabia. So far, so good. In the book, they felt the roundabout way was dipping into the peninsula to cross the Red Sea at Sharm el-Sheikh, which is the tip, and into Arabia works for me. Then, the adventure tale matched up details from Exodus. That seemed too good to be true. They claimed to find chariot wheels in the channel, and then matched Exodus detail for detail, Mara, Alim, etc. Finally, they arrived at a place known as Jabal al-Laz, which, according to locals, was the real place where Moses received the law. There are rocks that seem to have unique water erosion. There are purported Solomon markers commemorating the crossing. The mountain stands alone and even has a sooty dark top. 
it really, really matches. In the book, Williams and Cornuke are trying to evade the Saudis, who have a top-secret military base near the mountain. Why near the mountain? Because the nation of Israel knows the Helena theory is wrong and the laws theory is right, and out of holy respect will not bomb the area. While sneaking around, they claim to have found all the right stuff. The border stones, the cave, and even the pits where the Hebrews hid their Egyptian booty. Because of antiquity laws passed right about the setting of this adventure, Saudi Arabia could not claim the discovery for fear of the gold going back to the country of origin, a court battle between Israel and Egypt. So rather than letting either enemy win, they kept it hush. It was a great read. Others have jumped on the bandwagon in the past few decades, including the same guy, Ron Wyatt, who claimed to find Noah's Ark, you know, not the one in Kentucky, on Mount Ararat. While I fully believe the Arabia theory makes more sense, I am not entirely convinced of the Jabala Laws theory. Something just feels shady about the new theory. The Arabia theory. Or it could be none of the above? While little makes sense about the Helena theory or Great Bitter Lake theory, there are a few passages that make me question Jabala laws also. There is so much room in Arabia that there could be any mountain. Remember Elijah? Jabala laws is still too close for him to walk into the wilderness 40 days. Jabala Musa is 182 miles from Israel, and Jabal al-Laz is, oh wait, uh, also 182 miles. Yet, Jabal al-Laz and Arabia makes a um, lot more sense for these reasons. Number one, Ramses the Great could no longer reach them. Two, Egypt would need to use its regular army to invade Edom, Moab, and Midian to even come close to finding the Hebrews. Number three, no Hebrew could choose to walk away without risking being captured by the above enemies. Number four, Arabia is a land without detail. So no wonder we don't know where Rafidim, Kadesh, Zin, or Sin are located. Number five, there is no food or water in the Arabian desert which would require the need of manna. Number six, the Hebrews crossed the Jordan from the east. Arabia is east. Helena's mountain is south. Number seven, Exodus three. Mount Horeb is described as being near Midian, along the back of the desert. Moses was hiding from Pharaoh Horemheb. If Midian is near Aqaba, then it would be strange that Moses would flock closer to Egypt, Jabal al-Musa. It would make more sense if he flocked from Midian deeper into Arabia. Exodus 19. Once the Hebrews pass by Midian, they reach the mountain. The Helena theory would have them just looping around in the peninsula. 
the Arabia theory would have them just going deeper into Arabia. Psalm 106.19 and Deuteronomy 5.2 also use the word Horeb without any tangible clues. But Deuteronomy 1 gives some very cool details. In this chapter, Moses is 120 years old, and 40 years of rehab are finally over. Since year one, the Hebrews have been hunkered down eating manna and drinking from a rock. Where? Somewhere without archaeology or landmarks. Deuteronomy 1.1 These are the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel, and Laban, and Hazroth, and Dizahab. There are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir into Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel, according unto all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. After he had slain Zahan, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Astoroth in Edrir, on this side Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law, saying, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in the mount. Turn you and take your journey, and go into the mount of Amorites, and unto all the places nigh thereto, in the plain, in the hills, and in the vale, and in the south, and by the sea side, to the land of the Canaanites, and unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. Kadesh Barnea? Not really sure. You know, there's, again, a lack of archaeology. But it is in a wilderness somewhere. The Jordan River? Well, that one's easy. It runs distinctly north to south and acts as a border along with the mountain range, between Israel and the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. Mount Seir? That is in the land of Moab. With the Helena theory, the Hebrews stayed near Jabal Musa for 40 years, and then traveled straight north? At no point is this on the other side of the River Jordan, since it is due south. To get on the wrong side of the Jordan... Moses needed to veer too far east, only to have to cross the back against the River Jordan again. An 11-day journey meant a pace of a dozen miles per day. With my Arabia theory, there are always, they are always on the other side of the River Jordan. In other words, east of it instead of south of it. For them... At a reasonable pace, an 11-day journey to arrive in Moab could be 300 miles, placing Horeb somewhere deep in Arabia. This 11-day journey is another reason why I struggle with Jabal Allahs. 
it is just too close to Mount Seir or Moab. Numbers chapter 20 brings the Exodus to a close. After 40 years of rehab, the Hebrews were ready to go into the Promised Land. The Helena theory would mean they would travel straight north and then cross into Moab and Edom so that they could cross the River Jordan between Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Arabia theory would mean they came out of the Arabian Desert to arrive right at the north-south border, the Jordan River. Numbers chapter 20, verse 14. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Thus saith thy brother Israel, Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us. How our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee. Through thy country we will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor the left until we have passed thy borders. And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with thy sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway, and if I and my cattle drink of the water, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him. With the Helena theory, Edom would not block them. In fact, they could easily access the king's highway from Jebel Musa just by heading north. Edom is south of the Dead Sea. Yet with this theory, the Hebrews still managed to sneak through Edom to somehow end up on the eastern side of the Dead Sea and River Jordan. Huh? No, you can't pass through our territory. Yet, then in chapter 21, they magically appear in Moab. So did they cross through Edom or... Uh, the Arabia theory. To come out of Arabia and reach Canaan, you'd have to pass through Edom to reach the king's highway. From the southeast, Edom lies between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. Edom blocks the way for a generation of Hebrews who have never experienced violence. These folks are young and holy. Avoiding war with Edom, Moses and the Hebrews bounce north to the land of Moab, which also borders the Dead Sea. This makes sense if they came from Arabia. This is impossible if they came from Jabal Musa. To the evil Canaanites, who've been waiting for the invasion for 40 years, the weakest link in defending their land was from the south, where there is no geographical advantage. An alliance with Edom kept the Hebrews from doing the obvious. Heck, Ramses the Great 
would have make, made an alliance with Canaan to crush the Hebrews along the king's highway. Instead, Moses and the Hebrews bounced to the north, eventually reaching the Jordan River, which was one of the steepest rivers on earth. This was a natural border, and even if they managed to cross, the mountains would have given them high grounds pleasing to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, excuse the episode three pun. Yet once again, God leads the Hebrews to the worst possible spot and then performs a miracle. The only thing left to do, though, is to wait for Moses to die. I hope you've enjoyed episode 11 of Examining Moses by Jason Lee Willis. Check out my website or Facebook page, Jason Lee Willis Novels, for ordering the book or for more audio podcasts. The music you've been listening to today was provided by YouTube's audio library. Until next time, 